I know there are going to be some people uh, filtering in um, as we begin. Uh, we are finishing off the second ecumenical council, the one at Constantinople in 381. And we basically finished the content there, but there's a few things I wanted to end with before we move on to the third and fourth. Because the topic changes from the Trinity to Jesus as God and human, which is obviously closely related. Um, before we get there, I, there's a funny video I mentioned that I was going to show you all that is um, a nice, fun, com comedic articulation of the problem of some of these an analogies, basically, analogies for the Trinity. We all love analogies, and most of these analogies, I would say all of them, they fail very significantly, and so the Lutheran satire created this video. You can look it up if you're listening from away right now. You can look it up on YouTube. It's called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. So, without much further ado, it should be loud enough for once. So this is an excellent system right here. I don't think there's anything... Ah, there is one. There is one heresy that we haven't covered in here because it wasn't really popular. It clearly doesn't work. It's called partialism. It's going to make an appearance in here. Partialism being like the Father's part God, like part of the Godhead. The Son is part of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit's part of the Godhead. And so it sort of splits up the essence of God into three, and you can see why that would be uh, problematic. But they're going to just mention that, so uh, here we go. Meant to be funny. Okay, Pastor, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Pastor, tell us. But remember that we're sinful people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, we're simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid, ice, and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> what? Modalism. An ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 of the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Now get it together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick! composing one-third of the divine. 
And who confesses the heresy of partial? The first scene in a cartoon program, Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge uh, together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay. Come on. It actually, I think there's a scene following. I'm going to wait. So what do you guys do for a living? Well, we come from a long line of snake farmers, Patrick, but truth be told, this has been really bad lately. Oh. Uh, that was kind of a nerdy joke. Okay, so anyway, uh, yeah, Lutheran satire. That's probably their best video. I did watch some other ones that they've done today. Um, hilarious, really inappropriate, sometimes mean. There's one where they, uh, these, um, you know, simple uh, uh, Irishmen dialogue with a Jehovah's Witness and with Mormons, uh, two different videos. It's hilarious, but it's not like the way I would dialogue. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, anyway, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess I, I do like to be a little nicer. Um, but that's just straight up uh, really hilarious, right? Uh, Patrick was well known for using the three-leaf clover analogy. I mean, he realized it was an analogy. Um, he's called the Apostle of Ireland. He was actually, he was English. He was an English arist uh, aristocratic um, aristocratically born, but then he was kidnapped by slave traders and eventually by slave traders from Ireland. Yeah, eventually he um, became a monk and then he uh, did mission work to the Irish, which is really a fascinating story and there's all kinds of sub-stories from that. Um, anyway, so that, that, just to give that a little bit of context. So here we are resuming uh, our discussion and I, oh, I actually should have mentioned when we were talking about the Council of Nicaea, if you guys ever, ever heard of a certain Nicholas of Myra, St. Nick? Yeah, he was a bishop of Myra. Um, and the earliest list we have at the Council of Nicaea, this is in 325, has him at that council. Uh, because he was a bishop in Asia Minor, pretty close by, I would be shocked if he wasn't there. Um, there's some debate about some of this, but I'm making the argument right now. Um, and he's best known for, apparently, punch punching Arius in the face. <laughs> for holding that the son and the father are heterousia and not homoousia. Saint Nick, he was well known for loving children, giving out gifts, being very charitable, and caring about good philosophy. 
That is why Arius got punched in the face. You're denying my good news, our good news. You're Boom. <laughs> Um, yeah, so back then it was actually more normal today that would be an inappropriate behavior. I think it was inappropriate back then as well. Uh, needless to say, it's funny how St. Nick became our Santa Claus and literally standing in for everything that he hated. <laughs> he sees where you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You know what I'm talking about? He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sakes. The Gospel of Arius. Be a good person and you'll get lots of presents. That's exactly what he despised. I feel sometimes I think about St. Nick. You know, if you're aware in the intermediate state right now, if he's aware of this, like, I feel so bad that his whole life was flipped upside down. Sometimes think about this, right? He cared about good, the good old gospel. And if you want to say the son isn't on the same level as the father, you have no gospel. So anyway... There's Bonhoeffer. Maybe you read it. Bonhoeffer is reminding us that it might not all make sense early on, especially something like the Trinity, Jesus is God-man, but give it time. The, the day's going to come. Keep thinking. Keep using your intellect and your imagination, right? Your intellect as far as it can go, and then your imagination to fill in the lines. That's what God created us for as we image him. And the day will come. If it doesn't make sense now, it will just hit you. And it's really cool. So thank you, Bonhoeffer. You got to at least quote Bonhoeffer one time a year. I don't know why. So I want to summarize, before we move to the next council, the Trinity in seven points. This comes from a certain Stephen Holmes, a very well-known scholar um, of the classic understanding of the Trinity. He's still at St. Andrews. Um, and these are adapted from his book. This is actually a book I'd highly recommend. He's kind of, you know, he's not going to write at a lay level, but it's very, very precise, and that's what I appreciate. So I'm going to go through this quickly. Feel free at the end of each slide to take a picture. There's just two slides here, and before we move on, I thought I should sort of summarize the Trinity. Seven points, so that's God, right? Seven, godly is a good sign, right? First of all, first point, the divine nature is simple and composite without parts and ineffable. You can't speak about it without God revealing it first. It is also unrepeatable and so in crude and exact terms, one. Nature, essence, same meaning here. First point, that should be pretty simple. Second point, this is something to really meditate on. Uh, language referring to the divine nature, essence is always inexact and trophic. That's not really a word we use much. It means nutritional. That doesn't really... It means it's something that allows us to feed upon God. It's something that's for our nourishment. That's even better yet. That's the translation of the Greek word. I don't... That's uh, a word he likes to use. Language referring to the divine nature is always inexact and nourishing for your soul. Nonetheless, if formulated with much care and more prayer it might adequately, if not fully, more fully refer. It's a slow process theology. Here where we get at the three instantiations, and this is where you can take a picture because the fourth point's on the next page. Again, give credit to him. This is so well put, all of this. There are three divine hypostases. You know this from Neoplatonism. <laughs> uh, just kidding. That was an inside joke if you were here. 
there are three divine hypostases that are instantiations of the divine nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm an instantiation of humanity, so are you, I suspect, unless you're a robot from the future. Fourth point, the th I'm really dry today. My humor is just going to be super British, so just kind of roll with it. Uh, I am. Uh, the three divine hypostases exist really. It's not like a virtual existence. It's real. Eternally and necessarily. And there is nothing divine that exists beyond or outside their existence. Thomas, at the end of the Gospel of John, did not get this. Remember Thomas? Just show me the Father. Show me God. He's talking to Jesus. And Jesus is like, if, you, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. And this is also necessitating, there's no divine usia behind the face of Jesus. That is God. That's powerful. There's not some fourth substance, in other words. Theologians like to say it, say it that way. It's not like there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then this divine primordial essence that they're all like merging out of. That would be very silly, right? It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You look at, upon the face of Jesus, you see God. There's a lot of mystery there. I can unfold. That's another class. It's really cool stuff. We'll get at some of that soon, actually. The three divine hypostases are distinguished. This was a big point I hit. Hopefully it's familiar. By eternal relations of origin, begetting and proceeding, son, spirit, and not otherwise. How is the son different from the father? The son is the begotten one. The father is the unbegotten one, period. That's it. You can mention the son became incarnate, that's true, but um, Steve and I would hold that, you know, being generated, being begotten from the father implies being sent and incarnated as well. So it's like an all-inclusive concept, generation. I know this is uh, difficult. Uh, so how is the son and the spirit different? The son is the begotten one, the spirit is the preceding one, or the spirated one. I just took the word spirit and turned it into a verb. Theologians are really original. That's, uh, that goes back to the 300s as well. I'm not making this stuff up. All that is spoken of God, six, with the single and very limited exception of that language which refers to the relations of origin, that is begetting and proceeding, is spoken of the one life the three share. And so is indivisibly spoken of all three. So anything you say about God, you're saying about all three with the one exception of the personal uh, attributes, the relations of origin. And finally, and here's where you can take a picture if you wish, the relationships of origin express slash establish relational distinctions between the three existent hypostases. No other distinctions are permissible. I think we kind of already said that, but that's a seventh point to clarify. It's often misunderstood. It's like, a lot of my students think in terms of like the father's, the, the, the creator one, and the son's the loving one, and the spirit's the omnipresent one, but no, they're all three what I just named, right? The son is present right here. He doesn't need the Holy Spirit to be present in virtue of being God. What is the Holy Spirit? Because he sends out his spirit to make himself present. What is he talking about? His humanity, his mediating role. Right? There's something beautiful, elegant, and fitting about that. But don't think the sun's just like floating around in heaven right now or something. We're going to get at what this view entails in the next council, in fact. 
I'm not going to go over this in detail, but just in case there's further questions, I'm going to go through quick here. You probably don't want to take notes. But this is the development of language of appropriation. And, and so this is probably what you've heard of. And this is to say that it is appropriate to use some terms referring to one of the persons um, because it's just logical. It makes sense in her head. It's appropriate and thus appropriations. But we shouldn't forget that all three are all of these attributes. This is just getting at the appropriate nature of some language. You can get a lot of different uh, encyclopedias or theological works. The most concise one I could find is a surprisingly awesome encyclopedia online, the Catholic Encyclopedia. Um, so the first example of appropriations are the names of God. When you're reading the Bible, it's not going to be God, God, God. It's going to appropriate names differently between the three. Naturally, there's something fitting here, so especially Paul likes to do this. The name God is often, not always, often appropriated to the Father. Um, the name Lord, Yahweh, is appropriated to the Son, um, almost without exception in the New Testament. And the name Spirit to the third person, the Spirit, right? That kind of makes sense, right? And um, the Spirit is called God, arguably in one or two instances, very possibly one, you know, Bible debates and stuff. Also, attributes of God. These are just some examples, and I'm going quickly. I think this is important, and if it gives you an idea, why did I grow up as a kid hearing, like, the Father's, like, well, for example, the eternal and omnipotent one, the Son, is the, the grace-filled and, you know, whatever it is. Well, this is because the language of appropriation. As long as you don't think that only the Father is eternal and omnipotent and the one of un unity... As long as you realize that's something all three partake in incessantly, then you're, we're good. But it's fitting to think of the Father as the foundation, the origin of the Godhead, again, eternal origin. It's fitting to think, oh, yeah, unity, right? Isn't it? Of course, the Son is the united one and the Spirit's the united one. But anyway, so when we come to the Son, and we see this a lot in the New Testament, and also in the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament, uh, wisdom, word, this sort of language, it's fitting to think of the Son as the beautiful one, the truthful one, the wise one. Um, and the Son's especially related as logos in that culture to the order of the universe. Of course, the Father orders the universe through the Son by the Spirit. Do you see how this works? But there's a fittingness to the sun here, all right, as logos. That would ring of intelligence. Intelligence is the intelligence of God. Of course, the spirit's the intelligence. You, you, you see how this works. And then finally, and sorry if this is a little too quick, I just want you to understand it's okay to use these appropriate languages as long as you understand they're all partaking in them. When you think of fruition, goodness, charity, New Testament, Old Testament, it attributes this to the Spirit of God. Uh, you think in terms of life, breath, sanctification, God who breathed in Adam and Eve, and God who rebreathed new life into us after we fell. The Spirit is most often used. Remember the story with Nicodemus. I got to be born again? Well, the Spirit's the one who gives birth. Of course, it's the Father who sends the Son by way of the Spirit who gives us birth. They're all doing this, and I wouldn't separate it, but there's a fittingness to this language. All right, so that's where we're going to end regarding the first uh, two councils here. There's so much more to be said. I just kind of have to, I really just tried to 
say as much without having to rush and then move to this third council. As you know, before we're going to actually talk about the third council in 431, we're going to talk about the problems that precipitated it. And it's the growing confusion about how Jesus is God-man. Now, this language is as old as dirt, right? I mean, Christians have been saying that since, you know, Jesus looked in the eyes of Thomas and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know, thick-skulled Thomas. We're all Thomas, aren't we? I'm a Thomas. Um, so uh, before we get to the Council of Ephesus, I'm going to give you some background, and then I'm going to give you the more immediate background. And the first two points to note are very early. This is really closer to 100 AD. There's a couple of Christological heresies we see. You're going to immediately see that these are problematic, and they, so they weren't popular. But just so you know, these are going to be either denied that Jesus is God or fully human fully God or fully human. The first one were called the Ebionites, um, what you can call Ebionism. It's been a li bit, little bit lost in the sources, so scholars kind of have to, you know, reshape what exactly are we missing here, what exactly do they believe. But the Ebionites clearly denied that Jesus is God in any sense at all. He's merely human, and he's the Davidic Messiah. Ebionites were with few exceptions, I'm sure, former Jewish people who converted to uh, Christianity, but we're still confused at the, about the Messiah, naturally. Remember, if you're a Jewish person growing up and, and, and you hear somebody like Jesus, who is claiming to be God, say that, you're like, that's not, that's not in our scriptures, you're making this up. They would have that tendency to see the Messiah as the true human, the true David, the true Adam, but God, that's silly. So the Ebionites denied the divinity of Jesus. It's understandable when you think about it. And I think the disciples had this tendency. I think it seems pretty obvious to me. They had this tendency before the resurrection. All right, a tendency to be in what we now call Ebionites. Um, remember, when Mary is told that she's going to give birth to the Savior, the anointed one, it's all the language of Davidic Messiah. She's told she's going to bear the true human. Does Mary understand yet? Oh, that, that baby's God. I personally doubt it. We don't know. I personally doubt it. Because that's what would be your inclination too. I mean, God's, you know, eternal. <laughs> uh, the baby's born. <laughs> Obviously not God, right? God's omnipresent. My baby's just pooped himself. <laughs> Obviously not God, right? So anyway, Ebionism, it makes sense, but you see why it fails really quickly. And then sort of the opposite and this would be popular among the Greeks, is uh, docetism or docetic theology. Um, and this is the view that Jesus was God, but he only appeared to be human. He only appeared to be. He wasn't actually human at all. Think of like a projection or something like that, but way more complex. God is projecting himself in human form, but it's not actually like, it might look like your anatomy, but it's not really you. All right, he's not really human. So if you're a Greek and you hear somebody claim to be God, that would actually be fitting to some Greek philosophy around at the time. Oh, Jesus claimed to be the Logos. Great, okay, Plato and the Stoics talked about that. Awesome, so Jesus is God. Well, that means he can't logically also be human, right? Think it through during that day. It makes sense. So the Docetics, these Docetists, that's easier to say, would, would argue that he's fully God, but not truly human. He appeared, and it comes from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to appear, 
Dokeo, docetics, anyway. Cool stuff. Meanwhile, from 100 to 300 or so, there are other various forms of subordination, that is, of the Son to the Father. We've talked about these before, so I won't hit them now. Now, I've already mentioned there's a Christian response way before these councils. The Christian response was very clear about the issue, that he had to be God in some way, he had to be human in some way. You can't deny that. You deny the gospel if so. They're clear right up front. Just as an example, Irenaeus is certainly the first to argue uh, just blatantly that Jesus had to be fully God and fully human for the gospel to make any sense. Of course, he's not the only one. We're going to see that Christians pick up this argument. It makes sense given the Greek world back then. And um, he's the first one to do it clearly. Notice, though, how, how is he God and human at the same time? Irenaeus didn't know how to express that in a consistent way. He's really a biblical theologian, so no shame on him. Um, he also was martyred before he finished his work. In 202, there's a martyrdom from a... From, it doesn't matter. So anyway, here's kind of what's precipitating this conversation that Christians are already having. How is he God and human at the same time? We agree he's God. Arius is wrong. And by the way, just for the record, Arius also denied that Jesus was fully human. He denied that Jesus had a human psyche. So he denied that he's God and human. Arius was very clear. He's not our mediator. He can't be. Philosophy says so. <laughs> and Christians are like, uh-uh, you're a bad philosopher. <laughs> All right, so this leads us to this Council of Ephesus. Before we enter, and that's at the city of Ephesus, you know about this city from the Bible. By now, it is borderline. It's kind of like Phoenix and Houston. It kind of keeps going back and forth, which, which one's bigger. Um, it's the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, perhaps. So it's a, it's a really major city. It made sense to have this council there, we're going to see. And it's called to settle this question. Trigger alert, it doesn't. And it's going to require the next council to settle everything. But there's a lot of interesting stuff that pops out at this council. It's called to settle this question, how is Jesus God and human at the same time? How do we say that without being rationally indefensible? How do we say that and sound like not irrational, right? As Christians are nerds, they want to be consistent um, back then. Now, there's two rough answers before the council, and it's this, um, uh, it's this council that is called to resolve which position is stronger. I'm going to just tell you that both of these positions are problematic in their own way, but there's one that's way worse, and it sort of loses the initial battle. All right, so here's the two rough answers. I'm not going to use the phrase again, the word flesh view. I find it very confusing, and scholars don't typically use it. They'll just say Cyril's view. Cyril of Alexandria, all right? It's the patriarch. A patriarch back then, by now, was a bishop of bishops. Uh, not necessarily the case. Technically, the patriarch was a bishop over a really major city, and they would typically be over other bishops in the area since the major city is the major city. So if you're the bishop of Chicago, you're going to probably be in charge of Peoria. No one's from Illinois. If you're the bishop of Peor uh, Phoenix, you're going to also be over probably the bishop of Tucson, no offense. Ooh, that was, that was tough. Okay, so, so anyway, he's a, he's a big deal. Back then, the bishops were like the best theologians. He is extremely sharp. 
Uh, he's called the best theologian in the Greek-speaking East in the 400s. If you guys can guess the best Latin-speaking theologian in the Latin-speaking West, you might know Augustine. His kind of contemporary, but Augustine died before even the council was held. The year before, it's so unfortunate. Uh, so Cyril's a beast, but he's, um, how do you say this gently? I'm, being, I'm not going to say that that way. He wasn't the kindest human being. That was nice. Okay. Have you ever met somebody that are really, like, really intelligent, they're really intimidating, but they don't just want to beat you at, at whatever argument you're having. They're going to tear your character apart while they're at it. You're not only wrong, you're a scumbag, you know, that sort of thing. Cyril had the tendency to do this, and it's rather unfortunate. Welcome to uh, the church was never perfect, Cyril's proof, and Nestorius has his own problems we'll talk about next. Um, so this is the word flesh view. I want you to understand the basics, and then I'll, under, uh, I'll kind of explicate it to give some detail to this. But the basics is this, Cyril emphasized the oneness in Jesus, the oneness. He's one person. He's one hypostasis. He's not like two, God-man or something like that. He's not two people. He's one. That's the emphasis of him. So the one person of Christ with a divine nature, who Cyril will, will mention here and there who took on a, a human nature at a certain point in time. That's fair. That's very appropriate. That's actually the way we speak today. Nothing wrong there. But you can see how somebody might misconstrue what he's doing here. There's a two-ness in Jesus, you might say, as well. Well, he doesn't really do a great job of explicating how that works yet. So his model is going to also take very seriously the idea that God, God can't suffer, by the way. God suffers. And there's a certain, we're going to see that this is appropriate and right to say, as long as you're saying it appropriately. And that's something that is going to make this other crowd at Constantinople and Antioch, the other big shots of the East, uncomfortable. Like, well, God doesn't suffer. It's the human part of him that suffers. And Cyril is saying God suffers. God died on the cross. Do you see what he's doing there? This is clever theology, but he's actually technically right. God died human death. But he's not saying a human death often. So it leads to some confusion. Now notice also what I'm implying here is that there's some tension in his language. He was bright, but he was inconsistent. It's not his fault. I mean, he's one of the first that can articulate this really clearly, right? But there's a tension in his language, and he doesn't distinguish between nature, essence, hypostasis, person. Right? He doesn't do a good job of distinguishing this, and it leads to some confusion. Both of these are basically quotes from his work. There is one incarnate nature of the Logos. Wait, what? I thought there was like two natures. One incarnate nature. I think what he's saying there is person, but he's not clear. Elsewhere he can say, and this is my paraphrase, but it's a fair paraphrase of him. Elsewhere he can say, Jesus is one united person with two natures. Well, wait a second. Is he one nature? Is he two nature? You can kind of see where this is going to go and why maybe other bishops during the day who are also nerds are going to be like, hey, that's not cool. You're denying something here. All right. And he didn't fully elaborate exactly how it works that Jesus, son of God, eternal son of God, took on a human nature. He tends to kind of minor in that area of the humanity. 
Now, what you guys know as the hypostatic union, if you've ever heard of that, hypostatic, that's a weird word, but it shouldn't be anymore if I just put the pronunciation on a different syllable, hypostasis union, there you go. So this is getting, hypostasis in Greek, it's not really true. It means, this is good, it means instantiation in our language. We typically use the word person in the Latin-speaking tradition. So it's the personal union of the God-man. He's one. And he's going in that direction, but um, he dies before he gets there. And uh, his life is embedded in a lot of controversy and disputes and fighting. And, you know, he wasn't the nicest person, so, you know, anyway. So there's Cyril's view. Word flesh view, I don't really, just think Cyril of Alexandria, the great bishop of the 400s. Well, this is going to be opposed to his arch nemesis uh, named Nestorius, who's the patriarch of Constantinople. Now, by the way, the patriarch of Constantinople, uh, well, I'm fast-forwarding. I don't need to say that. That'll just lead to confusion. I will say this, though. Nestorius' support base wasn't so much in Constantinople. It was more in Antioch. And so we're going to see a battle between Alexandria and Antioch. It's kind of like, you know, yeah, diamondbacks. Yeah, cubbies. You know, you kind of support the whatever city you're living in. You support the sports. Back then, you'd support your bishop, and you would nerd out about theology. And, you know, everyone from the top classes to low classes loved this stuff. According to historical sources, it always blows my mind. So I'm going to skip over that. Now, I want you to understand Nestorius is approaching the topic of Jesus as God-man from a different angle. He tends to, this won't really make much sense to you, but he's, he tends to reflect a different approach. It's called um, the theology of an indwelling logos. He tends to think of Jesus in a way where the divine logos comes upon the human and fills the human. And this is going to lead in a different direction. And you might already see that's kind of a problematic way to say it. Well, think of it this way. Nestorius starts with the human, who we call Jesus of Nazareth, the human being, um, and works his way up to the divine logos. That human being, he's going to say, was indwelled perfectly by this, what we call the logos, the second person of the Trinity. He's not wrong for saying that. I'm going to show you. Know, some Bible passages make it sound like that. But if this is your approach, your starting point, it's going to lead to some odd conclusions. We're going to see that Nestorius gets into some trouble here. Why? Nestorius cannot philosophically acknowledge. He can't be consistent with what he just said and acknowledge that there's a oneness in Jesus. He's going to talk about a conjunction of these two natures but not a union. He won't talk about Jesus as a united person because of that. And here's what gets problematic, so hear me. He can't say that Jesus of Nazareth and the second person of the Trinity, Son of God, are the same thing exactly. You see where this is going to go. He starts imagining Jesus. Now, I'm going to be fair to Nestorius in a second, but I'm just sort of letting you know, he's going to start imagining Jesus as like a two-person split personality thing, something like that, something like two people. He doesn't want to say that, but he sort of is going in that direction. It turns into like split, just like the movie. 
just kidding. Nothing like that. But like a split personality, there's the God part of Jesus and there's the human part of Jesus. Sometimes the God part of Jesus is active. Sometimes the human part of Jesus is active. If you think this through to the logical conclusion, if any of you guys can guess why this is now called a heresy, because it's going to deny really substantial things in just a second. But let's wait for it. So what's the problem here? I just said that. He cannot say the divine logos, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus are the same thing, the same person, that they're united. Um, And that's a significant claim. And this is where he gets in trouble. And this is what ultimately precipitates um, the Council of Ephesus. At least it precipitates the discussion that leads to kind of an argument that starts getting really heated quickly. And that leads to then the council. And it's something that maybe you're familiar with. By then, it was normal to claim, and it's good to claim, that Mary is Theotokos, meaning birth giver of God. That's poetic. That's clever. And and, and, and it's a true statement, we believe, today. But if you're Nestorian, you can't acknowledge it. Do you see what, what he might be, be thinking here? Mary just gave birth to the human part of him. Ooh. Do you see that? So instead of Theotokos, I don't think I have, it, I don't have a whiteboard. But it's easy. Christotokos is what he preferred. Not Theo, God-bearer. Christotokos, Christ-bearer. He preferred that language. Well, you can already see that he's kind of implying a split personality Jesus, but he also seems to be denying that Jesus is God. Why can't you say Mary is Theotokos? Well, it's like the human part of him. Okay, I get his argument, but if you're not familiar with this bishop, you're going to think he just he's an Arian. And this is what gets him in trouble initially, and it's what starts the conversation that really escalates quickly and leads to, we're going to see, the rejection of his view. He's really misunderstood, for the record. Um, He's just a poor writer. You know what I'm talking about? It's really hard to write clearly, and he's not the clearest expressor of ideas, and that can get you into trouble. It's really unfortunate because he meant well, but his view leads to a problem. I'll just tell you it right now. You guys are all probably wondering, right? Like, what's really the problem of the two-person Jesus? Honestly, when I grew up and I thought of Jesus, I thought this way. Oh, like, when Jesus is walking on water, that's because he's God. When he's eating, oh, that's because he's human. This is not a good way to talk. This is exactly how I I was sort of, I think I was taught, but I certainly thought this way as a kid. Well, what do you do when you get to really important things like Jesus' mediator role? What do you do with that person on the cross dying? Oh, that's just the human part of him. Oh, so God's not mediating us on the cross. Holy crap, you just denied the gospel. If God isn't suffering and dying, then there's no mediator there. Just the human part is there. Do you see how this works? Jesus is God, man. You've got to think it through to its full consistency. And he failed to see the problem here, ultimately. All right, and that's not on him. Nestorius was not a Nestorian. His followers are going to take his ideas a lot farther. And so today, there's still Nestorians out there. Guess what? Talk to them. They'll often tell you this. Well, he didn't technically represent us on the cross, because technically that was just the human part. It 
ideas have consequences. What Francis Schaeffer said that. So in case you're still a bit confused between the two, I just added this slide for this class and my general class because I think it's helpful to kind of summarize what's going on. Um, Cyril and, um, and Nestorius are agreeing a bit more than you would think, but their differences lie in tensions and emphases. And so let's start out with Cyril's view. His method, and I already mentioned this, his method is to start with the Son of God from all eternity at a certain point in time taking on human nature, Right? That should be clear. His favorite verse is John 1.14. Not really, but that's kind of where he's getting his, uh, his inspiration here. And the word became flesh, right? Makes sense. That's an appropriate way to talk. And we're going to see this is the better position. It's not perfect, but it's better. And his emphasis, as I've mentioned, in case you didn't hear, the divine son God himself, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus of Nazareth are the same subject. They're the same person. They're identified one-to-one. All right? So that's him. Meanwhile, Nestorius has a different method, and this might have been captured already, but he starts with the human Jesus of Nazareth, works his way up to the divine Logos. Now, even when you hear that, for a second, doesn't it kind of sound like what we called earlier adoptionism? It's not adoptionism. He doesn't mean to say that, but the idea seems to imply it, right? Yeah. Well, his favorite kind of way of thinking through this, Paul in Colossians 1.19, what does Paul mean is the real question. But I can hear Nestorian flavor here. I can take his side and be like, okay, I understand where you're going. I just think it doesn't work. In him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You kind of see how he's got this two-nature emphasis. That's what he means to say, by the way. He's got an emphasis on the two natures. Cyril's emphasis is the one person. Nestorius, two natures. We're going to see the compromise is just take the best of both here. Um, anyway, and yes, his emphasis, not only that they're distinct natures, they're completely separate, and there's actually no point of connection at all. Jesus is just God, some human, and he's just sort of split. And again, who died for you on the cross? Oh, the human part of him? Yep, we're done for. There's no good news, right? So there you go. This leads us to the Council of Ephesus. Perfect timing today. I'm really happy. Uh, Let me know if there's any questions. I realize what we just went over, that was the hardest part today. It's weird. And the questions aren't all answered. They're still confused about how do you think of Jesus as God-man at the same time? We're getting closer, but we're not there yet. Now, the interesting thing about the Council of Ephesus is unlike the previous two councils where bishops knew going in, it's like Arians are, it's clearly wrong, right? I mean, it's just me. No, no, that's just a new whole gospel. That's a whole new uh, religion. But going into this one, Cyril had good points, but he's kind of a jerk. Nestorius had good points, but he's really confused and like, what is he really saying? No one really can tell. Antioch is going to defend Nestorius naturally, team, you know, Diamondbacks. And um, Alexandria is going to defend Cyril, team Cubbies. Alexandrians win, so naturally my team is Alexandria. I'm a big Cubs fan, if you don't know. By the way, I think it was 10 to 1 when I left. They're slaughtering the Mets right now. I'm feeling really good about it. So, it was unknown. 
Now, this is where I'm going to talk about sort of the events of the council. It is a complete mess. And the way we reconstruct it is through these really three steps, and then I'm going to have a reflection at the end, like an afterword. Uh, but this council was kind of funny and really sad. So the first step when this council was called, the Alexandrians, who think about it, they're down in Egypt. They live really far away. You've got to take ships. So because of the time issue, they arrive first, led by Cyril, who happens to have seniority among the bishops. <laughs> so he's the one over the council. How convenient. Uh, <laughs> And uh, they arrive in numbers, they uh, outnumber everyone else, he outranks the other bishops, they hold the council before Antioch arrives, at least most of the leadership, and they announce victory. <laughs> Woo, team scumbag. Actually, I probably shouldn't have uh, identified with the Alexandrians. There we go. So that's the first step. They made really good points, don't get me wrong, it wasn't all personal, but a lot of it was, right? So here's the second step, right after the Alexandrians leave, when they're not around at least, they're out getting, you know, hot dogs in the city of Ephesus. Antioch then arrives, they're led by John, John of Antioch, he's the bishop of, we haven't heard about him yet and that's okay. Um, they call their own council, uh, they didn't have permission to get the great grand room of the hotel, so they actually have the council, their own council in the hotel lobby, for reals, really. Uh, nothing's new, right? It sounds kind of like it could happen today almost. They announce victory and they call Cyril Apollinarian. Does anybody remember what Apollinarianism is? I have to think about this. Apollinaris was somebody who really hated Arianism. And so in defending the divinity of Jesus, he went so far as to accidentally deny that Jesus was fully human. He argued that the son's psyche mind, the son of like God's psyche replaces the human psyche or spirit of Jesus. So he doesn't have a human psyche slash spirit. The way this is rendered in her language is the bane of language. It's just confusing. So I'm simplifying it as much as possible. So Cyril being called an Apollinarian, actually it's kind of, there's some, there's just a ring of truth there, but very unfair. Obviously Cyril's not present. Third step, this is awesome. The emperor intervenes. He arrests them. <laughs> but he eventually sides with Cyril. Um, they got arrested basically for, um, uh, what do you call it, when you're being disorder? There you go, disorderly conduct. Not becoming of a Roman citizen, much less a Christian, but Theodosius isn't really concerned with that part as much. He arrests them, and he eventually sides with Cyril, and so are most Christians, except for Antioch. But why? I always want my students to get this. It's really not about Jesus as God-man. The, the real crux of the issue, as everyone saw it, is Cyril, uh, sorry, Nestorius denied Marius Theotokos. That's the issue. And if you deny that, you're either implying, it does seem like you're implying Jesus isn't God, but you're definitely implying that whatever that baby that came out is not unitedly called God. You have to be able to say that. Now, that's fascinating, by the way, and please use your, well, first your intellects, and then your imagination is going to step in really quickly here. How can you imagine God becoming a baby? It's pretty cool. 
But he seems to be denying that, and that's why he's in trouble. By then, it was um, long, has long been established that uh, it's appropriate, theologically correct, to call Mary Theotokos. Um, it does come out of the New Testament as well, arguably, although the meaning is, is less certain. So there you go. Uh, another thing that got Nestorius in trouble is he befriended somebody um, at the time that was a well-known Pelagian heretic, and that's a whole nother story. You probably don't know what that means, and that's okay. He um, was a really nice guy, and it got him into trouble. <laughs> now, here's the afterword, and it's a little bit comical or sad. I don't know. This is just a whole pretty much, this is a council of a bunch of monkeys throwing feces at each other. That's how I think of the Council of Ephesus, so go home with that right? Monkeys throwing feces is not far from the truth. After the council, it was eventually declared official because the theology's right. It is. Cyril's right here. Nestorius understandably loses the will to fight. He ends up in a monastery, also understandably. Cyril softens over time, fortunately, and ends up writing some things with a church that couldn't agree with him, and it was a compromise, that was kind of uh, way more on Cyril's side, as it should be, but it also brought out elements of the, two, the dual nature of Jesus. Call it the formula of union. That's going to come up in the next council uh, next week. Um, and it's just a fascinating change. Cyril from the, the dog fighter. That's not the right way to say it. Bulldog, that's what I meant, yeah. Cyril the bulldog to kind of laying off and repenting. I don't know. He just got a little bit softer. softer. Uh, Cyril's style back then, by the way, was to say views, theological views, as provocatively, meaning thought-provoking. I know to Gen Z that means sexual, but thought-provoking, provocative, as provocatively as possible in order to expose his enemies. You ever seen somebody that does this? God died! It's like, well, he did. God died, parentheses, a human death. Now, that's all very appropriate. Nestorius still can't even say that, though. You should. It solves the crisis. Oops. Okay. So that's that. And um, this brings us... Well, that's actually a fantastic stopping point. Uh, while we're eight minutes early, I would rather press forward just for a second because next week is I'm going to argue probably the most important council to understand, and, and it might be the most material. But I want us to focus on it. So I want to get ahead just a little bit now, and then we'll end in questions. The great thing is this is not a, you know, in section notes. This is all an overflow from the last council. It's all very natural. Why? Because this council deals with the exact same question, although it's going to solve the crisis a little bit, eh, mediate the crisis um, how do the two natures relate in Jesus, the Son of God? Basically the same question. How do they relate? And the reason this council we're going to see was called, and this gets really interesting, because I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Eutychianism, but it's just a fascinating way to think about Jesus that's problematic. And that was from a monk, not a well-known monk, uh, somebody that scholars call, this is really mean, so I'm, I'm quoting a book I'm going to actually recommend, maybe I shouldn't, a dim-witted monk. 
a dim-witted monk. Oh, that's kind of me. Well, he didn't think through the implications of what he was saying. And what he argued was that Jesus is, think about it this way, a mixing of two natures in one. You know, one part God nature to one part human nature, throw it in a blender, you got Jesus. Is he God-man? Well, in a sense. But do you see how it's not the same? What happens when you put salt in water? Get salt water, right? Is it salt anymore? Not chemically, it's different. Is it water anymore? No, it's a whole other thing. Do you see where this is going? And he's going to mix these two natures together in a way that he has trouble saying he's truly God, he's truly human. Yay, philosophy. So the problem here is called the tertium quid, um, and that's a third substance altogether. What is Jesus? He's a third substance, a mixture of God and human. There's no other one like him. Well, wait, how does he mediate us? You can see where the problem goes immediately, can't you? So the council was uh, called in part to discuss this new view, which they knew was wrong, and in part to also further mediate the crisis from uh, 431 from uh, Ephesus. So we're going to see that as we move on. Now, if you ask Eutyches, is Jesus God? He's going to probably say yes. Is Jesus human? Well, the humanity of Christ. Now, this is a quote from him. The humanity of Christ is like a drop of wine in the sea of his divinity. The humanity of Christ is like a drop of wine in the sea of his divinity. In other words, human nature, really finite, small, mixes with the larger ocean of divinity. So you can see why he has less problems saying Jesus is God, but is he human? Not at all, technically. It's a whole nother mixture, really. Right? It's no longer sea with just the finest bit of wine. Well, we're going to see this as we move forward. It's a really poetic way to say it, though, isn't it? And it fails. And when we come back next week, I'm going to start with uh, who's considered typically, at least by the Western church, including our tradition, as the hero of uh, the Fourth Council. If you talk to the East, they're going to say, I like Leo, super great guy, here's my problem. And that's where we're going to be ending next week. He's called Pope Leo, um, which wasn't unusual back then, by the way, to be called Pope. He wasn't the first bishop to be called Pope. Back then, actually, the first bishop, patriarch technically, to be called Pope was in Alexandria. All Pope means is father. And so if you're really good at your job, they'd call you Pope. Now, that's in the Eastern world. So there was an Alexandrian patriarch that was called Pope Cyril. Uh, there was a, 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 one from Antioch, one from Constantinople. They're called Pope. Well, in the West, it became a tradition over time, starting about 20 years before this second council, about 430, arguably before. But it became a tradition to call the Roman patriarch, the Roman bishop, uh, Pope. And there's a reason he's called the Great. You're going to agree. He's kind of a really cool dude. And we'll start there next week. All right.